0: You better train for me, because I'm training for you We got to love, love, a revolution to do You better train for me, I'll be training for you we got... Episode 34, In the Water Garden of Eden Don't you know I'll always be true? originally published September 21st, 2022. It's not gonna be the most philosophical discourse. However, there are definitely some, some life lessons uh, to be derived from what I'm going to be discussing, which is a real uh, dedication to the resilience and the adaptive strategies of um, this plant species that's known as water lettuce. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been in my life over over 10 years now. Um, and it was gifted to me by one of my dear friends in my early, early permaculture days back in L.A. He was doing a, a backyard-scale aquaponics operation and he had gone to a, a pond store, uh, aquatic store, and um, just kind of went on a shopping spree and and got a lot of water plants and was learning about them, and I hadn't had any real exposure. It had only been sort of book knowledge and fantasy, really, but he was the one who actually put together a kit, and then he ended up um, finishing school and leaving town, so he he donated it all to me at this new project that I had, and I had the opportunity on a lot of acres at the time, working on... um, working as... Sort of a, a, a live-in staff for this this uh, rehabilitating farm slash old ranch, and um, and I really I was amazed, and all of the folklore and all of the the science that I had learned about it, it really literally came to life. He can, he showed up one day with. Um, like a, a, I don't know, what is it, like a 20-gallon rubbermaid bin of um, some, maybe a, a few inches or, or half a foot of water in the bottom just to keep everything alive. And then it was this amalgamation of duckweed, azola, water lettuce, water hyacinth, maybe some parrot's feather and whatever else just gets clumped in at the pond store when you go and you try to get one of anything you're going to end up getting a bunch of uh a bunch of uh stowaways which is which i find to be great and, and a real value add but uh that's what got me started and um he didn't have uh his unfortunately his project didn't work out um it's always trial and error but he didn't there were no fish for him to deliver to me that day, um, but I went ahead and and started off with goldfish and over the years, I've had minnows and mosquito fish and um always wanted to to next level up to edible more well more more palatable fish like catfish, but they're more um, have more needs and so it's pretty much for me been all over all these years just a a process of of maintaining um adding not usually subtracting but sometimes happily adding things like I've been able to grow bog plants like taro and I've made I tried making poi it didn't turn out that great but it did work I was able to ferment the uh the taro root and and eat it also as like a like a potato type of starchy root crop, um, and, uh, all kinds of other, um, aquatic species, um, right now I'm, I'm been feasting on the Kong water spinach, which was, which I've wanted to have for a long time. I've had, uh, water chestnuts, and, um, there's like a a vining purple sweet potato relative that grows really well. There's also just the fact that, um, according to Jeff Lawton, and in my experience it seems to be true, I don't know too much more about the science of it, but he stated before that um, something to the effect that pretty much, well, at least a, a, a vast array of of vining plants actually evolved in riparian or water not necessarily in, in the water but on the water's edge in the zone of of uh, the moisture that that is is near uh, bodies of water and streams and rivers and whatnot so so there's a lot of species of plants that surprisingly will actually sprout fully underwater submerged roots and you'd be used to them growing only on the surface either either they they can partially drape into the water be growing on land and then one of their vines goes into the water and then all of a sudden you see from one of the nodes there's there's roots growing into the water you know um there's there's so much fun to be had um learning about and exploring that but uh but at the end of the day um yeah well my my bucket list my wish list of the more exotic um aquaculture assemblage is is always um it, it's all it's always getting bigger and 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 bigger as I, as I learn more and more but um but I I'll get by with a bare minimum to just have the the bare the, the essential functions met which is for me the without the extravagant edible and other functional crops to have a a more a more more full-featured and more rich and complex ecosystem aquatic ecosystem it's interesting to think about what you can get away with as the bare minimum and um and it changes in every environment because there's frost kill and there's freezing and some things will survive under the under an inch of ice or a quarter inch of ice, and make it through the winter or something you know sometimes it gets too hot, the oxygen all goes, and everything dies sometimes there 's just too much organic matter that starts to um, cycle through its normal life and if you don 't muck it out rake it muck out you know on a, on a, on a sufficient basis, then it can sort of um, it can become go anaerobic and 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 lose oxygen so there's a lot of i mean it's it 's fragile when it's not at a scale where there's a lot of checks and balances going on and um so engineering these these uh for me it's been all about the the ecosystem pond which in the in the industry of of ponding professionally that refers to ponds that do not rely on mechanical or chemical filtration um and aeration and whatnot and so whereas very high maintenance very ornamental aquaculture landscaping projects would typically have a desire to have a a sparsely covered surface of the water so that you could see see into it that it would be relatively clear crystal clear and then there would be very oxygen hungry species in there that would require a lot of filtration a lot of oxygenation and um and if you're suspending that that environment without it actually being a, a a real stream or a real river or a natural habitat or natural um, a natural pond, then there's all that prosthesis that goes into it. And I've worked on those projects, and I have, yeah, I've I've, I've um, not been attracted to that, and I'm not. I've wanted to prove to myself that it's possible to find the right balance and to fine-tune it so that you could keep fish alive, you could keep plants alive, and you could grow uh, aquatic food crops that are exponentially more productive and and, and, in many ways more resilient, um, and and, and really focus on a survival gardening, survival permaculture strategy um, that uh, my... My quintessential saying is: "Is uh, in addition to watering your garden, why not also garden your water?" And so, as much as I can ever afford to have water storage, that is my irrigation water. Uh, but if I can afford the loss to evaporation, then I'm always going to prefer to be storing as much water as possible in a living aquatic system where i can grow my own food out of it often with better results and and often um to protect the crops from to give them islands little chinampa islands that's a system that i've been using and working with on a lot of different scales for many years island gardening if you will um rooted in uh ancestral farming techniques of uh, of of mexico and um really it was the it was the the layout of of the original um the original indigenous city that modern mexico city is built on and uh, there's still some remnants of it living today and there's rehabilitation projects going on with that but as you learn in the permaculture design course that system of um of island gardening is proven to be the most productive human engineered um horticultural method in the history of the planet, above terracing, above um all other forms uh that are known known to uh to to, to science and the people who study this stuff across the world. And I would definitely concur with that, having decided that that was the way i want to go i want to i I want to flip the script and reverse the ratio so that the value add of having either floating or or sort of islands that are actually built up from the bottom of a a, a lake or a pond um, or even a, a basin a container i've done I've done everything except for uh like the scale of a lake which is what the original chinampas were built into but if you just go online and you search the word chinampa c h i n a m p a if I'm thinking, if I'm spelling correctly but it spells how it sounds chin ampa <laughs> You look at an image search of that and you see the illustrations of what it looked like. It, it's like Venice. It's like a food forest out of out of Venice because people are, are are canoeing and instead of sidewalks and streets, they've got a grid pattern of development where they're living on a plot of land that is actually on a grid of islands and those are all interconnected by these uh this grid pattern of uh of lanes of waterway and literally in that pattern they're able to hygienically offer their human waste products right off the side of their plot of land into the uh the aquatic system and have it, and have it be in that benefit that's non, non-polluting. And there's so much diversity of life that it, at all just naturally consumes it, as it would, the, you know, the waste products of all the life um, in an aquatic system, in general. There's so many cleaners and purifiers and cyclers and decomposers and such an elaborate food chain. When you allow it to grow and it's, and it really gets to flourish. So I mean, a far cry from that from those um uh grand roots of the system i got a hold of that and i never wanted to turn back and um i've i've experienced the efficiencies and now you know i mean the 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 project that i came from which i refer to often which was like i i do feel like that was the that was literally like mythically like the garden of eden because of the climate and the fertility and the work that had been done to build it out it was an established food forest and i was tending to it and enhancing it and and enriching it with my mojo and what i brought to it was the aquaculture that was missing and uh it was there were there were shall we say um not conflicts of interest but just lack of cohesion and divergence of life paths so that what could have been a lot of 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 mutually um bankrolled financing to to establish a very elaborate very permanent ag- or uh, aquaculture system um, systems of systems within systems of aquaculture across a broad sca- uh, broad landscape um, it just wasn't meant to be there but what i did have the opportunity to do there was probably the largest scale system that i had ever done and um it was uh it was not my favorite material to work with but it was a budgetary issue of and also just a an issue of 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 it being a land lease and and not wanting to sink a lot of capital into a project that we don't own so next best thing was the scale of a 16-foot diameter, probably four-foot tall, above-ground pool um, that had a very, a, a very, uh, it was, it was tore up. We had to get the professional sealant, and we put uh, hardware cloth underneath it to prevent rodent activity underneath just going and tearing it up and it did still leak a little bit but that was actually great because it allowed us to drip irrigate all around it so what it ended up being was probably my most epic masterpiece um, collaborative but it was kind of my I I led the project uh, after we got it after we got the the pool built out Um, and it was done it was trashed it was donated so we we yeah nothing really out of pocket except for splitting the cost on the hardware cloth um and covering that so leveling beneath it um laying down the hardware cloth stapling it down with landscape staples and then laying a bunch of old tarp um and other materials down to prevent uh puncturing from the the hardware cloth and and other elements beneath that and uh yeah, and built it up and then it held water well enough um, between a tiny bit of leakage and evaporation it was like once a week for an hour we would we would have to run a hose in there and we would connect a, a, a chloramine and chlorine carbon filter module uh, an inline module to make sure it didn't kill the fish and everything that was in there but basically what was started out as a as just barely filtered water, and a couple of feet, um, a couple of feet of that water in that in that in that system, we went and got I don't know twenty five goldfish, and they were maybe an inch long each. They were considered feeder fish, the the, the cheapest you can get from a pet store. And then, uh, my friend, he got a, he got donated a bucket of duckweed and I went to my favorite pond store and I got some, uh, Azola and, uh, I I went to an Asian market and got, and got taro roots. Um, and, uh, what else? There was, uh, uh, water celery actually was was there and um and then I went to <laughs> where I had last deposited the living legacy of that first assemblage of um azolla and duckweed and and water lettuce and water hyacinth amongst other things mixed in but I had been able to continue to maintain the propagation over over years um and donating them and passing them around to friends and even if I had to leave town I would make sure that some that at least if like if you take one bucket out of a whole pond and you and you gift it away to somebody who will maintain it on a larger scale then then you'll always have something to, to come back to and re- restart from so luckily I had a friend who had who had maintained a system after what I gave them and so started out as maybe you know as much as you could probably only fit maximum maximum like on top of each other like a dozen each of water hyacinth and water lettuce because they're each you know about the size of your hand and um, when they're fully grown and um, so yeah those whatever 25 goldfish not all of them made it Uh, and then that bucket those two buckets thrown in there and you know, in the beginning I got pictures of it. It was, it was just this, this, uh, we kicked it off with, with such a small amount. And then, um, I, I, uh, was scavenging around the, the, the sort of, um, detritus from years of cycles of people renting, leasing the land and farming there and just all kinds of old stuff. So I was able to was able to MacGyver together a solar battery backup system and i had i had a couple of small pond pumps so we even had flow forms that are these beautiful designs that that basically rebuild a natural structure of water and kind of synthesize or or recreate um what would be uh there's there's a whole science to it if you look into flow forms and there's there's really uh it, it can get very esoteric but also is very I would say sound science, um, and, uh, creating vortexing is another, is another aspect of that. But, um, essentially it was my first experience of getting to integrate a flow form. Um, but we had a solar powered pump that was pumping water up, th- up from a tube and, uh, and going to the forf- the flow form. And then I had a long, ha- uh, split piece of maybe three inch bamboo so like eight feet of that so that it would reach the center of the uh the center of the pond and um and create oxygen and move the water a bit uh and yeah I don't know if it within within weeks it was it was getting filled out and then (laughs) I had my work cut out for me to actually build islands within it and of course for me it's it's an abomination it's sacrilege to to be working with plastic but you got to start somewhere and you work with what you have so there were a number of kiddie pools those plastic maybe one maybe four or five maybe five feet diameter and 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 about a foot of depth and um, I would take pallets and put four by four legs on them and the kiddie pools and fill that with, well, first throw them over the, throw them over the, very awkward, very carefully, but gently throw them over and launch them basically into the main pool if you can imagine these wood platforms with these smaller pools attached to the top with screws and um, and washers and so that they wouldn't just break off or, or float away and they would stay in place enough once they got water in them they would be weighted down and then i could literally drive a wheelbarrow up to the side and toss shovels full of of soil into the kiddie pools from over the top of that that four foot above ground pool and fill them up and create that micro scale of exactly what the on a miniaturized scale, but on the bigger, the, the smallest scale I've done, I've done the Chinampa motif on is like, um, like a plastic tray where those four inch pots that you get at the nursery of seedlings, starter plants, where you can, I would just put all of my seedling starter plants, um, and I, and I would put them in plastic trays and I would fill the trays up so that the lower half of the starter pots were submerged completely and the the, the top half were above the water and the water would wick up and create this gradient of totally submerged and to partially submerged to drier at the top, but there'd be enough oxygen flow, enough um, aeration in the un- submerged portion to where the plants are so happy and never stressed from heat or from dehydration and if they have the kind of proclivity to where they can draw deeper from the more submerged water then it happens a lot i would see roots going all the way out and under and and way out into that tray you know some of them are, are able to, some plants are able to do that. Other ones, if they want to be shyer and they want to stay, you know, up in the in the top half, that's still plenty of, um, plenty of, of space for them to, 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 to grow healthy and be as dry as they want to be. And, but still never lack water. So of course they grow stronger, they grow healthier. And, um, and then there's a, there's less, um, a lot of just a lot of more resilience comes from that and so I've done that for years too so from going to those humble beginnings and things you know about mid-range of like those twenty-two hundred seventy-five 275 gallon totes they're the I think they're called international or not international but um, ICB IBC tote containers I can't remember the acronym now but but you see these giant kind of pallet sized cubed with a metal crate around them and they're plastic cubes and uh you ever just drive by an industrial area you'll see them everywhere but they often show up and a lot of times you can find them food grade where they've been used for syrups or other weird food additives and whatnot um and you can clean them out and and have them be non-toxic and then a lot of people use those for for aquaculture aquaponics and whatnot so With that scale, I would do chinampas with like terracotta pots on bricks so I could control that ratio of submerged soil. Normally, I would actually use the submerged portion to be sand rather than soil or compost because organic material underwater, which I've learned the hard way, is going to tend to decompose, suck up oxygen, and actually create an anaerobic environment and that can be toxic to everything you're trying to grow and i had i have a i have an experience that i wrote about in my book that goes into my first real big um disaster with that scenario but we were able to recover and make it work uh and the main lesson was whatever's under and if if you're yeah i mean my lesson is if i'm going to put pots of any size, in a in a pond of any size, um, I'm gonna want to make sure that uh, there's a not sterile per se, but a a sand, some something other than still compostable organic matter, um, because that's a very delicate balance, and there's already gonna be stuff living and dying in there so if you put a bunch of compost into that system and it tips that balance it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause death and you're going to lose things so it's better to err on the side of caution and I learned that the hard way again so if that sand is is what is submerged underwater then the sand is not going to as uh, sand is going to block that organic material above it from working its way out through the holes in the pot that have to be there for the water to get in through the bottom of the pot, so that barrier prevents that material from from uh, from working its way out, and it keeps it. It's not going to prevent it from having any impact whatsoever, but it's. It, but that was my lesson is significantly. Some people wouldn't would just put put plants in pots with. Um, with with little uh, volcanic rocks or, or or just pure sand and just let the nutrient value of the water do all that work. And so, you know, there's lots of things to look into and research and experiment with. Um, I'm happy with where with where I'm at uh, with this. But uh, but yeah. So this the biggest scale of that 16 foot diameter pool. I put in what looks like. If you've ever seen a permaculture design that has a what's called a mandala keyhole garden where essentially a lot of what permaculture design teaches is just the sacred geometry is is scientifically understood as just very ergonomic and very elegant mathematical geometrical um, design patterns that exist for Beauty and functionality in nature, but in terms of the ergonomics of designing for a human scale, you know it's often said two foot pathways or pathways you're comfortable with a wheelbarrow and then beds that are four feet wide so that you can double do double reach basically reach the center from either side of it and um and without having to walk through it, and therefore compacting the soil and crushing those delicate airways and all of that so-called um, flocculation that you want to occur—that happens when you don't compact the soil, when it gets very, it gets very aerated by all of the activity of the the, cre- the critters working underground. So there's a lot of these sort of rules of thumb and design principles that are really all about understanding the human scale and and moving away from the machine scale and the the robot scale you know and all that and so the most you may have heard of the herb spiral but there's a quintessential design feature in herb spiral i've built i've built a number of them and um uh it's the most charming and endearing sort of hallmark of permaculture design and um basically the, the the if you took a strip of flat land and let's say it was a you know a foot to a foot and a half wide strip that was let's say 20 30 feet long um you would you would only have um you would only have, you would have a you'd have a certain number of linear feet of growing space but it turns out magically through the gifts of um of of geometry if you coil those the same amount of linear feet around a conical um, mound then you actually end up with more unique opportunities to grow more diverse um crops and because there's different attributes of the more thirsty versus the less thirsty, and the sun loving versus the shade loving, and all an overall synergy, synergy of effects that happen when you, and you also economize space. So within the same amount of, within, within with, without taking up those 30 linear feet or 30 square linear feet on the landscape, because you have stacked it vertically, you now have as much productivity, if not more, in number in a number of ways, um, in a smaller footprint area. So it's very interesting how, how all that works. And I'm not I'm not that much of a left brain person and I may stand corrected on some some of the exact figures, so I'm not trying to get too technical about it, but you can look at the specifications and you can study it for yourself but uh it's a beautiful experience to to behold and it's just one of those quintessential things that teaches like yeah these natural patterns that you see at all scales galaxies the way water drains um seashells fibonacci numbers all these um these natural patterns um you can list infinite infinite instances um so from that as one quintessential example, the idea of the keyhole garden is that if you have a, let's say you have a a square backyard, and if you wanted to create an ergonomic, maximized product max maximized productive capacity within that area you could create a grid of four by four or four by eight beds or whatever um and you would end up sacrificing a lot of productive a lot of uh productive um uh square footage with all that pathway area but if you create a keyhole garden, which sort of looks like um, like a four leaf clover, but with uh, typically, let's see, it'd be, it'd be uh, six, it would be yeah, around six sort of distinct. Slices, whether they're like um, pie slices or, or or circles or more ovoid shapes, but basically, if you have one pathway in, and then in the center it widens into a circle, then you would be able to operate in, reach into all of these different panels um, from the center, and also access it from from the outer perimeter but um it's yeah I'm not giving the best description but if you think about a call it a six-leaf clover and the stem is where you walk into it and in the middle where they branch off is where you stand and you harvest and you plant and you water and you you know hopefully don't weed because you've you've designed it uh intelligently so there's not a lot of weeds um which is another topic but uh but yeah, so that that was essentially what I did within that sixteen foot piece. So I had those. it ended up being whatever it was, five or six of those kiddie pool platforms that uh, were built out and filled up um, with dirt and compost, and uh, and then I would climb in there, and I would be able to access all of them from a central point, and. It was insane. It was the most production I've ever had and uh, couldn't keep up with it and just insane growth. And just, of course, because there was a little bit of leakage on the outside, I I actually built up a chicken wire. I put very tall um, bamboo, maybe four inch bamboo poles that were maybe 10 feet tall, intended for, well, they were, they were, they were there to, to have vining, uh, plants grow up around them. So, which there was, uh, there were pumpkins that I trained on them. There were morning glories. Um, what else? Um, tomatoes, some, some would be requiring training and, and and attachment wiring and whatnot. Some of them would would grab on the cucurbits you know they'll they'll grab on themselves of course grapes uh successful cuttings of crepe uh grapes prop propagating from cuttings and um and it was yeah it was literally popping off and um and going nuts and uh like five dollars or less of green onions (laughs) they start out pinky width and like whatever Eight inches to a foot long, and I studded the entire perimeter. Oh yeah, so I, 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 having having attached those poles around all of the uh, the sort of um, structural posts holding up that that 16 foot diameter pond, um, the the posts were the frame that I was able to then wrap a two foot high um course of uh of chicken wire around the whole thing, and that created a pocket of about four inches between the outer um the outer pond sort of plastic material and that and that chicken wire which I stuffed with compost and mulch and I planted garlic and and uh and green onions mostly and uh and that's also where the morning glories were coming from and so you have multiple vertical climbers going on, and then these herbs sprouting up and those were the they were like dinosaur era epic giant inch inch and a half wide green onions growing two feet tall or three feet tall. It was insane, and they were crowded, and they were giant they were growing all around the thing. It was insane, and uh, I yeah I wish I would have harvested more. I harvested quite as much as I could the time I left and dried them and lasted for quite a while. But the 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 value for the price of green onions <laughs> that you can harvest the tops of and cook with or freeze or dry or whatever from the grocery store and then with like an inch of the living root system plant that and nourish it and it can go insane and uh and they're some of the most resilient uh hard to kill species that that you can start with so I always recommend that for people starting out, so that they don't feel like they have a brown thumb and everything dies. Rosemary, oregano, mint, green onions, garlic, greens, um, things that beets. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of crops that are just very, very robust, and uh, and are hard to kill. And it's good to start out with those so you build confidence. But yeah, also in those chinampa, that keyhole system of chinampa um uh pools within pools or island islands within the pool that was my first experience of growing taro so i had like a a grocery bag filled with taro roots that i got from that asian market and i just plugged them into to those uh to those islands and um and they took off like crazy they multiplied they were sending out runners it was insane and i got multiple harvests and that was some of the best feelings i've ever had um understanding that that cycle and knowing how <laughs> just really feeling that potential of 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 starting a system of food production that outruns you to the point where you're going to have to be starting to feed really think about how you're gonna start getting livestock to feed and feed the neighbors and you know that's that dynamic, that um ratio that that I live for to experience and um that was the most um invigorating of, of all time. That was the peak of my prowess so far in my career. And still it was just like a Doc Brown Marty McFly tabletop scale model of the real big picture which is which is something we had the epic idyllic Edenic site to be doing that on but we did not own it and I did not own it and there was I wouldn't I don't want to call it a falling out but I want to call it a a dissolution of interests to where I'm I feel so blessed even though there were some some ugly moments. I feel so blessed that things shook out the way they did even though it was painful to say goodbye to all that work. Um, you know, it's just the the, the life of a nomadic sharecropper until you can save up and and own your own land, you will always be, you know, on a waiting for the rug pull, you know, and 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 trying not to get too attached, but for me having learned that lesson so many times i do know that what you need to do is have an attitude of just experimenting and learning and compounding the lesson so that eventually 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 when you do finally get your own land um, as tentative as that is given our relationship with the state but relatively speaking to be a landowner and certainly to do the due diligence to own land where everything you want to do in permaculture doesn't even require a permit, which is essentially after the research that I had done on the due diligence, of the property I'm at now, everything I want to do is just bundled in the rural, self-sufficient, rugged, productive zoning lifestyle that's permitted without having to apply for permits you would have to be doing something you know at a very industrial scale to even have to worry about that but for homesteading aquaculture homesteading horticulture um it's <laughs> the, the laws are still uh rustic enough to where they actually are conducive to doing for people to do what they used to do which is homestead so that's a real blessing and now one more thing to say about that peak of prowess and it really in at in the moonlight at night with those posts going up it really looked like a it was like a crown a living crown i really felt like it was this regal sort of like if i'm ever gonna get regal all it's going to be is just like edible landscaping you know if it's going to look ornamental or palatial it's all going to be edible it's all going to be living you know i I could do without the plastic but that was pretty much the uh yeah the most epic integration of all the this is to me the next level of food forest that's the seven layer food forest because if you add to the seven layer food forest the layers of aquaculture then you have double those vertical layers at least when you add everything and stack everything up and wire it all together so you got stuff growing on the edge from the outside on the edge on the inside there's stuff i'm letting the rabbits eat on the outside there's stuff i'm keeping the rats away from on the inside uh amaranth is growing up the size you know eight eight feet tall looking like trees and uh yeah, it was just what an adventure. I would I would do my little sacred dance ritual and circumambulate dance around in, in circles around the thing and this pathway that I built and then um and then yeah, we could overflow it out of valves into terraces down slope from the thing. So it was just the ultimate, you know, reservoir, a uh, living reservoir and the word that is often used is fertigation irrigating with fertilizer, fertilized water, and if that fertilizer can be from a natural aquatic system that you build, that's the most, um, the most value you could add to the soil and to grow anything. So, yeah, the last thing I'll say about that is that, um, when it was at its peak, uh, in terms of the seasonality of it and, and, and the cycles of life within it, um, everything was was growing uh uh out of all those islands within it and then the the duckweed the azolla the water lettuce the hyacinth um i had never seen growth like that before and just like the dinosaur era growth of the uh of the green onions on the outer perimeter that water lettuce on the inside it normally um it doesn't it i mean it, it it doesn't really i don't know if you would say it looks like lettuce it's just another one of those <laughs> random plant names where who knows you know who was who what well, what people are thinking when they came up with it um if i had to describe it it's kind of like uh well if you if you if you hold your hand up like you're holding a like you're holding a light bulb um, or if you were holding a small bowl and so take away that bowl you just see your hand the shape of your hand holding a bowl that's kind of the structure of the leaves they grow they grow up and out at an angle and they're typically one to four inches tall and four would be on the tallest end that I had seen before but this time not only are we talking between the between the uh, between mainly the the water lettuce and the water hyacinth, which are which are the bigger ones, like the size of your hand? Um, from those two bucket, from that one bucket that was dropped in, of those two things, they completely covered the entire surface of everything in between those five-foot diameter kiddie pool islands just wall to wall and they were not just four inches high those petals of the uh, uh, they were like eight inches high i've never seen anything like it i mean i've seen them carpet an area like that and in a lot of places in the world it's considered invasive and noxious because if it gets into the wild then it requires control measures and it can choke out other species so obviously i'm careful and mindful about where do i do this in the remote desert or in climates where it's not going to um, migrate into waterways uh, because of the climate uh, so it's it's sold you know if it's sold in your area chances are it's not banned or outlawed but you got to be careful and you don't want to get in trouble so that's another discussion but um you know if it's if you can go to a pawn store and buy it it's you know it's obviously legal to have in your backyard or whatever so um but as with anything you know there's responsibility a duty of care e- ecosystemic duty of care um but if i want it to carpet the surface to moderate the temperature of the water and to help block mosquitoes and and every time you see a little crack in it I see now those one inch long um, goldfish being like several inches long and just tons of them every time I every time I see an opening between the water lettuce or I or I take out some water lettuce to feed worms in a worm compost which is like I mean if you have they're considered one of the most fast-growing productive plants in the world in addition to duckweed and azola which are tiny but will do the same thing if they don't have any competition they'll carpet the whole thing they're just they're just the size of a, of a pinhead um, whereas these other ones are the size of your hand but you know it's it took whatever weeks not even months for that entire surface area to be covered and if you take it out it will it will grow back so fast it'll make your head spin so that is so much biomass all you do is top off the water supply and occasionally rake the muck out gently and that muck is going to be the most productive fertile fertilizer you'll ever have and even more so if you did have ducks or wild you know fowl that were uh frequenting that that ecosystem and um yeah it was a real trip when i went in there you know i put on like wetsuit shorts because i'm like i don't i don't even know what's in here now there's so much crazy stuff in here oh not to mention the tadpoles and the toads and it was insane I, i've never to me that was the again the most successful system ever the most diverse and mature and rich system and to me the you know the uh, the indicator more than anything else um was just the size of that water lettuce growing and i tell this whole story now about that whole system um not just to wax poetic and be nostalgic about it but um but i, I do feel like it's definitely a story worth telling and uh, because it puts in context this mythology that I had where I realized this is the most Edenic property the most Edenic project and this is the most Edenic Chinampa system I've built and and it could only get better from here but it wasn't meant to be long term because it wasn't land that I owned so given my budgetary constraints and my my, um, prerogative to not cash out all of my crypto bags all at once I decided to very humbly relocate to a very arid region so I really did feel like this is the experience of being in some way, not by a person but by circumstance, kicked out of the Garden of Eden and forced out into the barren desert to sort of create my own mana to survive in this mythic uh, sort of um, uh test by the gods you know it's funny because in the permaculture designers manual very very early in the manual bill mollison talks about what he calls religions of resignation citing desertification and the over uh, grazing and and um and deforestation of the fertile crescent that led to the uh, ecological catastrophe that forced people into worshiping sky gods and pounding the sand and lamenting at the loss of the lush uh, tropical or subtropical sort of abundance they had of course there's climate change as a factor a big factor in the change of the neolithic revolution so-called and um, that's all of course worth worth noting and i'm not quoting him exactly but it is very important to understand that the authoritarian tendencies and patriarchal cultures that became very aggressive towards women animals and the earth that a lot of that frustration comes from that archetypal mythical story of being kicked out of eden and it was sort of A combination of climate change factors that were out of any human control but also a factor factors of uh of abusing the land with practices that weren't sustainable so thousands of years later you end up in a situation where you don't remember really what it was like it's just a far distant memory of a a more lush time and then you build a mythology around the, the cursing that happened the 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 blaming somebody blaming women i mean there's a lot of things to deconstruct about religions of resignation and i remember when i was taking feminist anthropology courses at university of oregon there was a study cited about how somebody actually an anthropologist went out and said i want to take a survey of the cosmologies and origin stories of as many cultures i can find and i want to make a ecologically deterministic um, argument thesis and see if I'm right or whether it was an emergent property or whether it was the original thesis I don't remember but what was what was distilled was this almost perfect correlation between uh, goddess worshiping feminine honoring cultures living in hospitable and lush, and still moist and ecologically um, naturally productive, intact wild ecosystems. That that's where the goddess was still preserved in the in the in the mythology, the cosmology, of, origin stories of the cultures. So they worshipped the, the 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 fertile mother goddess. Versus the cultures that had lost that way, whether through climate change or just nomadically arriving somewhere that had become more arid this isn't perfect i mean this isn't every culture i can think of a few um desert and and arid uh foraging groups that are certainly not patriarchal and that still have their love of of gaia and, and that are are not lamenting being kicked out of eden but Her study was interesting in that it did show that uh, a lot of the roots of patriarchy come from people who were somehow displaced to where they lost that connection. And we have, uh, yeah, a lot of very, we have a lot of very violent, very angry men operating under the name of religions that go back in time to this splitting away from from fertile ecosystems into less fertile ecosystems to where there's more conflict over resources. There's more scarcity and there's more reasons for owning women in their minds and their logic, owning animals fighting for territory and the whole entire warrior cult that emerges throughout the, the, uh, the process of domestication and civilization until where we're at now, which is (laughs) again, it's all rooted in that and um, if you look at Jared Diamond's work it is the tropical cultures that did not have cereal grains that would store well and that lived off of very perishable fruits and products of the jungle that were kept them on a immediate hunter-gatherer return cycle they couldn't for natural reasons there's so much life to devour the fruits that they had to just continue to cycle through it at a at a rate that that protected them from the folly of storing grains to feed armies to go to war with and then be in a perpetual state of rape and pillage and warfare that was the fate of the agrarian tribes that we able to figure out how to uh, manipulate the genes of those major uh, grain crops, and then build armies and and conquer the whole world from that from that uh, that ecological and and climatological and agricultural shift. Something to look into if you're interested. But uh, going back to my humble story here. Um, I'm not interested in growing and in yoking animals so that I can plow the earth and turn the soil and kill the microbes and let the dust bowl happen. I'm not following those patterns. I'm following those more... Uh, agroforestry patterns of actually building back in the forest and building back in the aquatic systems so that you can have the maximum productive potential of of swampy jungles <laughs> anywhere in the world and in a desert that's going to look like an oasis and there are real human-made and natural oases in deserts throughout the world and there's different land forms that are conducive to that but if you know how to engineer those landforms, even with the most modest of tools, just a shovel and your bare hands, you can transform the topography of a desert landscape so that more water accumulates where you want it to instead of running off. More water seeps into organic material that is that is shaded to where you have the capacity to establish trees that grow shade that can keep Water from evaporating as fast and it starts to compound on itself and that is what I call investing in the earth bank and the compounding interest of of, of of enrichment of the soil and 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 what Jeff Lawton would call greening the desert so so I'm fresh off of all of that glory and then whatever it was back in uh, March of last year is when i got my own first property piece of property and literally took a bucket you know a few buckets and some cuttings from that whole system as my sort of um severance package to try to reboot everything here and it was it was way harsher than i even imagined i mean i'm i mean i almost died everything practically died and uh I did have seeds i was able to keep a few things going and do sprouting and you know in jars and whatnot um and then after have after being beaten down since then you know i was able since last fall i was able to 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 grow fish and grow trees and grow soil and uh grow herbs and plants or um, herbs and, and greens and uh, and shrubs and um, all very, very micro-scale. And uh, a lot of stuff has just been hammered by the, the desiccating winds and the sandstorms and the heat and the record heat and the heat waves and everything. But I've dialed it in enough to where I've kept everything alive. And what I'm going to come full circle with now is Uh, getting to a bit of an end here is this lessons from the water lettuce on learning how to lay low you know literally i i learned from the water lettuce the lesson in life of the necessity to know when and how to to lay low to survive extreme harsh conditions and it helped me spiritually psychologically um to experience something magical that the water lettuce did, that uh, that I was able to um, establish in my little tiny uh, 150-gallon uh, galvanized stock tank pond that's just the very beginning. But that's Got the fish it's got the water floating water plants it's got the fertility in the water, and that is what I irrigate all my trees and my and my my crops with that's for me the the uh the thing i'll never go back from I'll never irrigate with dead <laughs> poison water i'll I'll let the chlorine and chloramine off gas i'll filter it uh, if I can I will vortex it or or flow form it. If, if the very least, I'll trickle it in through, through some um, tubing or what or whatnot, or pour it in by hand. But, but I'm gonna enrich that water through aquaculture, and then I'm gonna irrigate um, dry land plants with that water. And uh, that's what I that's what I've been doing. And it, and it takes those a combination of that bare minimum of of. Mosquito fish or goldfish—something that'll survive um, without survive in stagnant water. uh, Eat mosquito larvae if it ever finds its way here. And so far here, there I've never seen one mosquito anywhere else I've been in my life. If there's, you know, uh, the tiniest amount of standing water, it's going to attract mosquitoes. When when the when it's not super cold during the year but out here it hasn't happened but even if it did it would just be more food for the fish the fish have survived so far all of the um the the summer that that almost killed me they 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 survived it better than i did uh the water is beautiful it's um has a fair amount of, of healthy uh algae growth in it which is all good for for the system and um and other than that it's it's uh it's clear enough it's doesn't stink and um, that means that there's a good balance and if to me the fish are the indicators if the fish are happy fish are flourishing they're so abundant I can't even there are just countless fish in there and uh and I don't feed them anything I buy I actually feed them my spent green tea leaves and so they have lived off of algae and green tea leaves uh, for almost a year now, and they're they're multiplying like crazy, and I see them just going nuts in there all the time, and and so uh, so cheers to them, and <laughs> I'm so grateful uh, because it is super demoralizing when you know you see an aqua, aquaculture system die because you and you don't even know why it's something happened with the ph or the oxygen or the organic material or the temperature and whatnot so it's been flourishing and thankfully the last couple of top-offs have all been harvested rainwater um so i can't i i am about as um as as uh authentically living my dream as i as i've ever been and and although it's not as it's not it's not the eden that i came from you know i have to i have to um take that experience and treasure and cherish that experience and then have that faith that i can rebuild and re-implement that even in a, a harsher climate and that is really the that's the game so, I will have that much more dignity of having bootstrapped it from myself, or bootstrapped it on my own. Not that I wouldn't love to have help, and not that I won't, you know, someday, ho- hopefully, have help. But um, but accomplishing that to me, it's like whatever. It's it, it's what some people it would be climbing Mount Everest or something. You know, if I can establish a greening the desert project, an oasis in the middle of this desert under these conditions and it can sustain me and I can eventually be 100% independent from the outside world with my own food and capturing rainwater even in a desert where it almost never rains but if you can capture enough of it when it does to top you off for a whole year until the next (laughs) rainy season that is perpetual freedom perpetual paradise And, uh, and I have enough of a taste of it out here that it's, it's, um, I'm, I'm hooked. And so the main thing though, for me is like now half of that battle is won with the survival of the fish going through this first winter with the fish is going to be what tells me, um, how well they do under those conditions. But looking at the specifications, I think they're going to do fine. And, um, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing them win that battle. But the 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 uh this full cycle water lettuce laying low story, it was a real close call and it was really heartbreaking because unlike in that forgiving climate where I could throw the bucket of water lettuce And water hyacinth into that 16-foot diameter pond and see them take off and just go nuts and survive Um, yeah it was a whole it was throughout all the seasons and over a whole year they they survived frost they survived the summer Um, it wasn't like that here when i got that bucket of uh of water lettuce here Unfortunately, they did not like the water, they did not like the climate, and for whatever reason, it was too much of a shock from what they were used to and um and they just slowly turned yellow and and just died inch by inch uh, on on each of them, and although they were robust and fully green in the beginning, uh, and, and sending off runners, basically baby waterless plants just growing out of the roots of the of the full grown ones normally that's how they will propagate and just carpet a whole area before you know <laughs> in the blink of an eye practically but um, but here unfortunately, for whatever reason um, that first batch they just didn't take well to it. They didn't. They didn't like it, and they they all slowly died. The anaerobic stench was starting to compound. It was turning into the bog of eternal stench. The fish were still okay, but the uh, yeah the 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 water the water uh, lettuce um, I yeah and I in at least some water hyacinth maybe i may i may have skipped that this time and just stuck with the water lettuce i can't remember now looking back but uh but i got a a a good number of water lettuce to get going and um, they were seemingly fine for a while but again they started to they started to wilt and turn yellow and die and die slow stinky deaths and yeah jeopardize the health of the pond and uh and really break my heart and 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 make me sad but as with anything there's always a um there's always the 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 knowledge that you just have to keep looking for more more hardy varieties you know this is you're asking a lot and you have to expect there to be failures and you just have to make note of it and don't make that mistake again and just say okay well that wasn't meant to be a lot of things we're really pushing the margins uh and and seeing what works and and learning you know hard sometimes expensive painful lessons and hopefully again not dying ourselves but we do lose a lot of crops uh, you know in these experiments something you have to learn to live with and and grow and survive but um talking about growing and surviving this is so interesting what happened so basically um they they i i held out as long as i could and i just tried shading tried not shading etc etc there wasn't much i could do and at a certain point i decided this is i'm just gonna have to um put them out of their misery they're, they're really looking miserable. They're really just being eaten alive, um, as they're just decaying alive. And it's, I, I, and I had never seen anything. I'd never seen them suffer that much. Um, so at a certain point I just said, yeah, I'm just going to compost them outside and, and, and that's okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, for the most part they were just spent and, and done, but it, but of everything that I pulled out and they had grown, since I put them in there, to more than what I started with, for sure. But there was one little, tiny, piece left, the size of a dime, that was that I could tell was like not rotted at all. It was, it was just kind of shimmering and glowing and robust, and and just starting out at life, and uh, and I. I actually—it was actually accidentally—it was left in there. It was like the last. It it was like. It it was dislodged from whatever I had. I had kind of raked out with my hands, and um, and I saw it in there, and I said, you know, I was not happy while this was happening. Of course, I was quite somber, but um, you know, looking at, it, I was like, no, I'm not gonna. I'm I'm not. I'm I had to, in the, in a moment. I thought like am I just prolonging the inevitable by leaving it in there, or should I leave it in there, and, um, you know, what do I have to lose if it suffers and dies, and I have to pull it out next week, then then so be it, but I have much to gain if it just so happens to single-handedly repopulate the whole thing, that would be a miracle, Uh okay, well, I'll go ahead and leave it in there, turn my back on it, and lo and behold, slowly but surely, over time, very, very slowly, it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies exponentially until within a couple of months that one little dime-sized piece had propagated itself and split off and split off and split off to where the entire surface was covered as i had hoped as i had wanted as i had wished as i as i know as i've experienced again and again but this time it was drastically different in a way that i had never seen before in that it all it and all of its progeny were growing completely prostrate or horizontal flat unlike all the water lettuce i've ever seen i've ever grown which which grow which 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 is petals gross grow uh diagonally but but almost straight up slight at a slight angle but they, they 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 grow in a very vertical manner and i had never seen them uh grow flat so now what it is is there's maybe however many hundreds of these from that one point of origin that one dime-sized living piece it has replicated itself and now all of these distinct little maybe three or four leaflet floating pads of water lettuce um, they're all only about each the size of a quarter um several leaves all flat and discrete units the size of about a about a quarter so they've all stopped growing at that's at that at that um horizontal dimension and they've remained flat which tells me that there's something very interesting and intelligent going on about how it has become aware of the climate that it's in and whereas the 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 species or the the, the, its parents that were adapted to a different climate where i got them from and where they had been flourishing they were able to express themselves in that climate in a certain way but that was not sustainable for them and 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 literally not sustainable to the point where that where it was it was a adaptive disadvantage and they were selected out and they died off And I don't think it's a genetic difference. I think that it's a behavioral difference. I think it somehow is self-aware and that it just different growth strategies emerge under different conditions. So the new generation, which is not hindered by the habits of the past and a different climate and a different environment, they all are practicing an adaptive strategy and I don't think it's just like one generation genetic evolution. I think it is a capacity of the intelligence of the plant to be to adapt with self-awareness of what's different about its environment and whether or not that new little first growing dime-sized piece actually knew what it inherited Whether it was watching its its tall parents die off and said to itself, I better not grow tall in this environment, otherwise I will die off. Or whether everything had died before it became self-aware and it was just starting out in, 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 in the first environment that it knew. And it says to itself, I'm in an extremely arid desert and these winds and this desiccation would destroy my uh, ability to survive. If I grow tall, so I'm going to just grow flat, <laughs> and 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 do it that way. When which it's done, and for having done that, it there's no yellowing. It survived the entire, and it flourished through the entire scorching, lethal summer, and it is still flourishing. And I still can't keep up with it. And I have to uh, ceremonially sacrifice its overgrowth into composting to feed the the to feed the plants in the dry land uh systems that i'm i'm irrigating the water with and so for me that is a um just a a million sort of mr miyagi uh splinter the mutant ninja turtle master teacher guru you know this this um parable of the uh, of the adaptive low-lying water lettuce there's a lot of things that uh, that help me be um be content with periods of my life where, it, where it's time to lay low it's time to have a low profile to survive and 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 to figure out how to flourish that way and to be resilient so i don't want to get too corny with making these analogies but um i gotta say beyond the lesson about laying low and how that's very interesting that that's possible and that it's just adaptive strategies in the intelligence of life and really trying to tune into that and realize we have a lot as humans if we're going to get you know extrapolating this uh we have a lot of potential to um to shift our behavior in ways that are more sustainable given the circumstances so that's kind of an obvious conclusion to make um, but what sticks with me more th- more than that even is that the memory of that moment, I'll probably never forget, of that moment of looking at it, that dime-sized piece that was just left alive. And, like, I have the power to, like, if I'm negative about this, if I had a negative glass-half-empty attitude, you know, and that w- it was just sitting in there, and I could have just swiped it out, being like, yeah, it'll never grow back. You know what I mean? It'll never make it nothing else made it i'm over it i don't even want to look at it it's bad feng shui to see things dying you know all kinds of stuff like that there's all kinds of stories i could have narratives i could have played based on a mood you know or some human attitude but i was i, I paused and i looked at it and i thought and i'm like why should i project that bias i know that it is not diseased and I'm going to let it have a chance and I'm going to back off. And I did. <laughs> like, for me to then continue to watch it flourish. And think about how valuable that is to me because I I so don't want to have to go back and buy more. And I would also say to myself, if if I brought it here and it didn't want to be here, it doesn't want to be here. I'm not going to force it to. I'm not going to go get more and do it again. That would be like not ethical for me to go and replicate a failed experiment in that way. Unless I'm going to drastically change something to give it a different chance. But... It was, yeah, it was like that close to basically ending my relationship with a plant that I've had that relationship with for ten years, and and because it was able to adapt, I get to have that in my life, and it also turns out it is edible. However, it's got lots of sharp, spiny oxalic acid crystals that it forms that uh, you have to either cook for a long time, or. I've had good luck with high oxalate uh, um, plants with uh, fermenting, but um, I'm just gonna consider that to be a worst-case scenario backup plan. But um, who knows? Maybe someday I'll, I will get the guts to cross that bridge, and I will do what it takes to uh, to cook out those oxalates. Certainly, I know if I can keep that going, and it's gonna be it's gonna be tough to to, to see if it survives the winter. But if it does, then I know that will be a reliable food crop, even though it's not the most desirable as a food crop. It's other features, which is purifying the water, creating that shade for the fish, shading out the, 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 the evaporation of the water. And then it's overgrowth, always f- being able to feed worm compost, to be able to feed soil and just be a constant source of nitrogen and and living organic matter to build soil with i mean that is like in a time in the world where the fertilizer 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 shortages on the mass chem ag scale are going to cause already causing massive famines and i'm talking about the most simple humble lowest on the totem pole micro scale of empowerment with just water and sunlight and some botanics some a little bit of botanical you know uh, <laughs> love and and that's one of infinite um, types of relationships that i that I have and that anyone can have, and that change everything about the dynamics of survival in any environment so Yeah, I mean, there's people who say if only people would just fucking eat kudzu, it wouldn't be eating the South. We'd be we'd be eating the kudzu that's eating the South, and we'd be all a lot healthier for it. There's a million examples where we are not valuing the marginal. From insects to invasive species, all the blackberries I grew up with in the Northwest, man... I didn't let hardly any of them go to waste. I probably still stained from blackberries all over my face from being a kid and still got scars from being tore up by those thorns. And man, I wish I knew then what I know now. I would have become the king of blackberry wine, blackberry cobbler, blackberry pie, blackberry everything, blackberry clothing dye Because it was such an abundant invasive species, and you can feed goats with it. Goats will, you can, people will pay you to run goats on their property to manage the relentless growth of the Himalayan blackberry. So, like, some of these problems that we have, if we think differently about them, they're good problems to have. So, whereas, you know, water lettuce is the scourge of some people's, you know, uh some people's lifestyles um if you if you know how to to dance with it or you learn how to dance with it and you keep learning how to dance with it uh it 's one amongst many species that 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 are surprisingly um uh beneficial in a designer ecosystem and um i will say. Yeah, that's that that kind of brings to a close that whole sentiment, that whole cycle of learning learning from laying low and and keeping that positive mental attitude about not underestimating the power of even the smallest shred of resilient life to to retain and maintain its health and to bounce back and surprise you. Maybe that is like <laughs> something you can You can borrow borrow the will of the of the the resilient survivalist water lettuce when you need to. I certainly will. Um, But yeah, a grand finale for this episode would be to talk about what it now has become the most um, one of the most beautiful um, artistic uh, design features of my career in permaculture which is from all the epic things i've done for clients for all the epic jobs i've done with huge budgets working on crew working with crews and all that stuff i mean insane absurd high-end projects all over the west side and la county and malibu and beverly hills and pacific palisades and all of that stuff um i would i would say on par with all of that very fancy very high dollar stuff not necessarily exceeding it in aesthetic prowess or or designer prowess but something that to me is like on par um and it happens to be the again a very humble and very simple uh very simple sort of um piece of uh, of an art feature so what i had what i had uh the problem i had to solve a good problem to have with the voracious growth of the water lettuce now now that it is covering the entire surface by the time it began fully covering the entire surface of the pond what did that mean that, mean, that meant that reaching into the pond um with my with my uh my asparagus my my old asparagus canned asparagus can with the the lid off that i used to use my hand every day to um to dunk in the water and and uh watch out for the fish there's so many i end up catching fish by hand with this little um with this little can but I, i i i i sort of squeezed the edge of the can together to give that sort of um uh, spout kind of effect like you would get from a watering can so there's a bit of a point to it and so I will dunk that under get a get a can full that's the size, you know a, 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 an asparagus can So it's a little taller a little thinner than like a bean can but it, but the size of a can that you would use for a meal and uh, and that's what I irrigate with but the thing is as the water lettuce became grew so prolific that it covered the entire surface and and uh is just almost stacking on top of itself then it became more and more difficult to to get that can in the water without just ending up pulling off you know a couple of dozen of those plants and even though i'm okay with 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 turning some of them into into the 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 mulch on top of the beds even though i I consider it a a healthy offering a healthy sacrifice to uh, cycle some of that that overgrowth out um and obviously the ants like to feast on it so um the uh but the process of it just getting all over the can and all over my hand it just becomes a chore to deal with so i decided i would experiment with creating a little a little triangle floating raft out of strips of bamboo uh, split bamboo that's maybe like one inch bamboo split in half so imagine like one inch lengths, three one inch or sorry three one foot lengths of one inch wide split bamboo, and then I used some wire to to attach the uh, the ends together, so there's this floating floating bamboo triangle raft that creates an area that blocks out the growth of the water lettuce in the middle of this stock tank and not only does that give the fish the opportunity to come up to the surface and they don't seem stressed, they seem very happy, they seem very relaxed, if I can dare say, judging their personalities and whatnot. But um but they just seem very, very frisky and very, very robust and um certainly i've not seen one dead one this whole time which is a which is that is astounding because normally i see a lot of floaters in the first batch but no none of them none of them died once they got in there so they are seriously hardcore um and loving life and uh throughout all throughout all of this this uh all of this uh, extreme all these extreme conditions um but because i know they like that access to the surface and i and i saw them get sort of closed in even even though they weren't dying off and it wasn't like they were it was limiting their survivability obviously if they whatever if they were coming up to to get bits of oxygen they could work their way through the cracks of the plants but what i wanted to give them an easier time so not only does that little that little triangle that that foot, that uh, whatever the whatever the you know whatever it's a it's a a square foot a, a, le- a, a, a little bit less than a square foot in the form of a triangle. That creates this little window for me to reach in and get water out of without getting covered in the plants, and it gives the fish a place to have their free access to the surface unobstructed and it is the perfect compromise the perfect balance and just this pink floyd album cover living art piece where i'm like reaching through this portal into another world through this bamboo triangle surrounded by this carpet of floating water plants and in that triangle is always this this wild mosh pit dance floor of, of, of thriving fish. And then when I, when I go in there with the can, literally every single time I dunk it, there's at least one fish that gets in there. So it forces me to be slow and mindful and, and be aware that I let them get gently poured out and try to keep them from getting in there. But to me, that is like the meditation lifestyle that that I have that I dream about, and and it's it's hard earned, it's hard won, and it is like it, it's a it's a level of meticulousness, like a tea ceremony, like something very mindful, and it's like it's interesting when an ecological lifestyle, a permaculture lifestyle, necessitates gentle, meticulous postures and mindfulness were the, the the yoga of positioning myself to hold the position and do that and all this the sacredness in a ceremony for me um auxiliary to the science and ethics of permaculture but the spiritual dimension that it the spiritual yield and the emergent property of the spiritual balance and the spiritual value of living by permaculture science and ethics um you can call it whatever you want name it whatever you want for me that serenity that wholeness that balance that beauty that beauty way living beautifully uh, it's like a byproduct of appropriate design so so many forms of life even though it's just the few of us compared to what used to be a vast jungle that I just was that I just built in that garden, that Edenic property. You know, I've got this tiny little assemblage of barely surviving plant and animal friends out here, um, and 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 I've created this little sanctuary for us and like the bees are trying to get in the all kinds of life is wanting to get in and unfortunately i'm not ready i I can't just open up this little environment to them because if i did for any of them then enough then all the squirrels would get in all the rats would get in and and everything would be eaten down to the nub it's already happened before it happened in the beginning and i had to you know i've spoken before about what it took to sort of um to create a, a secure, a secure uh, mesh dome around around this pond and around my, around what I'm growing the trees and the uh, and the plants I mean. Lizards get in there and go to town. I mean I've had to do a lot of patching up of those, <laughs> you know, do a lot of. While I'm doing cybersecurity and cyberspace and, you know, all that, it's like I'm actually, I shut the computer off and I'm doing real-world security and real-world patching and updating the actual um, perimeter, security perimeter of my garden. So, as above, so below. But, I, yeah, I, I just feel like uh, the simplest, most humble things can 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 really be profound and um yeah you wouldn't think that those elements by themselves would be so magical but you put them together and you have something straight out of the labyrinth or something just something very majestic and and beautiful and like and and uh and full of spirit full of uh full of the, the the science and ethics designed well lead to these these experiences of enchantment that are ineffable and that to be honest I don't need to attribute it to any named deity. I can just revel in it and feel the calming effects of it and the enrichment of it and the pride in it and know this is like the the humblest of of designs that I'm that I'm living in amongst all the epic stuff I've done before but it means the most because it was suffered for the most and to just have that reward of cherishing what survives under extreme conditions it really it just puts everything into perspective and um and it is this magical sigil it is this magical altar symbol of what what can scale out from here so i get chills thinking about having the means to take this party out and extend it into the in, into the landscape to where <laughs> I'm going to change the climate in the direction of hydrating the landscape and providing permanent aquatic resources to the wildlife and nursing them back at whatever scale i can afford to a state of um of edenic abundance as they were used to in times in the climatological history of the earth where they were in a lot of the climates that are now barren they were once they were once under the ocean they were once under lakes they were once once um uh filled with ponds and so and with with year-round lakes and streams and springs so that's the name of the game um working with hydrology in a way that 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 that, that that keeps surface water throughout the year even if it's the tiniest bit so man not to mention the carpet of bees that were flourishing in those chinampa islands and you could walk right you could reach right within and amongst them and not bother them at all because they were so happy and it was the the cocoa core that was wicking up water to so they didn't have to like even get wet they didn't even have to risk drowning which unfortunately can happen if they don't have a nice secure place to be posted up on they were carpeting in these interesting niches where they were getting the wicking up of just little drops of water coming up from that that uh that coconut core material, so <laughs> it breaks my heart that I have to exclude the bees at this time that I have so far, but it's going to be a breakthrough. <laughs> the next crypto bull run is going to um, is going to to be what what allows this party to extend out into the landscape where i can afford to i mean right now it's already bursting at the seams trying to escape and blow up out into the landscape all i need to do is push myself to liquidate crypto holdings to 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 purchase more resilient um ponding materials and tankage that i can leave open and just have the means to continue to import the water as necessary to keep everything topped off in between rain cycles and capturing the rain but it will be worth it to put in that capital to sustain that party for the wildlife and and buffer that stress that they experience in these i mean there's stuff here that probably was doing fine before this last couple of years and there's a lot of stuff dying that probably wouldn't wouldn't have died otherwise so that's um yeah as part of as part of um uh, nursing um you know as part of resisting desertification and uh and working with and being in balance with the the ecology as it is and and slowly bringing back hydration to the landscape and creating an oasis, which is its own world within a world in a desert. And and uh, whatever wants to join and participate will be welcome. And whatever it doesn't suit its its tastes, then then it won't. But uh, I I call this the arid jungle. There is so much life out here. There's so many, so much biodiversity out here, and the last thing I'll say is that when it rained and there was rain, and as I was harvesting rain from one of the one of the ponds that I, the, the harvesting ponds that I set out there, um, there was a little critter in there that looked like some kind of little variant of a beetle, and I thought that it was. I thought that it was drowning in the water when I was cupping water out of it to to, uh, to go and fill my productive pond. And uh, it was like zipping around so fast, faster than I've ever seen any insects of its type move around on the surface. And I didn't notice it. I didn't think it would be there. So when I... I was getting water out, and then uh, I didn't bump it or anything, but it, it you know, it, it was it. It felt the ripples of my hand being in the water, and it just started zipping around and zigzagging around. It was so fast, and I was like, I almost jumped back. It was a tiny thing, the size of a thumbnail, but I watched it. I'm like, there is no way, like an amphibious insect, found its way from God knows where to this little puddle of water from the rains that's only going to be here a day and will only be here a few hours if i don't if i don't um cup it out and 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 take it over to where my my main pond is it's just going to evaporate but it was in there and it had had to have come a long way to get in there i don't think the wind blew it in there i think like you'd be surprised how water in the landscape will attract creatures they're always looking for it and uh it's rare that they get access to it so the fact that it was there and it was deep in the center of that that whole what 25 foot or yeah 25 foot diameter uh area you know it wouldn't have just happened upon that area so i do believe it found its way in there but i but at first i thought like oh i gotta rescue it as i've rescued i've rescued giant beetles that worked their way into the pond got over the edge and ended up on the 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 water lettuce and then it was stuck because it would have drowned there was it was like trying to feel if it could go anywhere and i saw i found there, floating around i so i am the king of rescuing bugs that get into the pond and, and can't find their way out or whatever uh so I was expecting it to be a rescue mission that it was in there. But it's funny because I did uh, watch it zip around and thought, oh, it, it, I mean, it, it, it must be panicking and it just needs me to help help it get out. So I help it out. But immediately, on its own volition, it, it goes back in and starts jumping, zipping around again. Like it was partying in there. It was having a pool party in there and it was moving so fast like it was discovering something new i mean this it was either the first time i'd ever had that experience or it was activating some dormant knowledge that it had so again i mean just n- never ceases to amaze full of surprises um you know i i i know from that experience that was just a reminder that like you can never go wrong hydrating the landscape and as long as you are mindful about maintaining a healthy fish population to eat mosquito larva then for all intents and purposes that is the that is the mission uh to be on and there is an amazing documentary uh i think it's called water fields or something i i I don't know if i i'll have to mention it in detail another time but it's a beautiful documentary about how an indian farmer in the face of just economically destructive droughts just started digging ponds on his property and totally transformed the ecology Sustained his family, sustained his business, was the most productive farmer, and then went out and just started digging ponds for people all over, in 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 a culture in that region that didn't practice ponding at all, and that he introduced it to them, and it became interwoven into their spirituality, and they were doing pujas and rituals, and and that became pond worshiping, pond goddess worshiping aquaculturists and the evolution of it that was shown in this documentary is like the most invigorating thing I've ever seen and I've seen a lot of invigorating docos and whatnot but to me I'm like I just want to I just want to be that dude or I just want to help that dude but that is the dude I want to be so some fun hopefully invigorating and uplifting lessons and as always (laughs) right about the time that i think i'm wrapping it up is when it opens up into a whole nother hour of action and i think that uh if you stuck with it this far hopefully uh if you're asleep and you're having beautiful pleasant paradisical island gardening oasis dreams and, and sweet dreams. And uh, if you've made it with if you've made it this far and you're awake, I hope you are halfway to the pond store to go and get this all rocking. Even if it's just in a normal tropical fish aquarium, you can do everything that I just described. You can grow food, you can grow fish, you can grow compost, you can grow living fertilizing water for your indoor outdoor plants and you can do this in a fish bowl so do it now peace cheers